9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joined by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center, who is somewhere in Washington, D.C. Washington. Hi, David. Hi, Rosa. How are you? I am well, thank you. How are you? How was your Thanksgiving? Oh, it was uh, very good, although I went made a terrible mistake, and I went to a restaurant for Thanksgiving that had the calorie count on the menu. And, you know, nothing Ooh. really spoils, you know, so I, what did I have for Thanksgiving? Salmon and broccoli. Uh, we are also oh, no. God will God will strike you dead. Well, he he took he took the fun out of Thanksgiving. That's for sure. Um, I am also joined by Thanksgiving aficionado Ed Luce, also in Washington D.C. I think. Hi, Ed. Hi, David. How are you? Good. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? I did. Although nobody, uh, and he struck me afterwards. Nobody asked, you know, what it is we were all thankful for. I thought that's you know part of the part of the ritual. Yeah, well, that was last, yeah, that was last week's Deep State Radio. We asked. Yeah, yeah, it had already been exhausted that whole potential. But I, I, you know, I had a whole speech prepared, and it was it was wasted. Oh, that's that's sad. Well, if we hit a little dead air here, maybe we can come back to that. And we are joined by old friend Max Bergman, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, director of the Moscow Project. Hi, Max. Did you have a good holiday? I did. I did. I fortunately didn't really have to travel anywhere. So uh, it was much more restful than it might have been. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I went to Michigan where it was extremely cold and came back here to New York City, where even as we're taping this on on, on Monday, it's snowing heavily. It's really Ooh. it's really unpleasant if you want to know the truth. So <laughs> um so so here we are at the beginning of a week, just like any other week, with a p- couple of possible exceptions. One exception is that the House Select per- Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence is going to vote out its report uh, on its impeachment investigation, and that's going to take place um, tomorrow. And then uh, on Wednesday, the House Judiciary Committee is going to begin its impeachment proceedings, which apparently it is going to do without the benefit of um, lawyers uh, or participants from the White House, despite the White House's uh, complaints leading up to this moment that they were being left out once given the chance. They said, uh, nah, uh, without the president, since he's going to be overseas at a, at a NATO meeting, undoubtedly doing a lot of good uh, building up NATO. Uh, and uh, uh, and without really knowing where it's going to go, how much it's going to entail beyond uh, what the shift committee hearings uh, uh, did for us. So the question, Rosa, is: Is this week a turning point? Uh, you know, in which we are going to move a little bit more swiftly towards impeachment, or is this drama likely to be played out for weeks or months to come? Uh, and Although there'll be many big headlines and 
exciting chirons on our television set, uh, this is just more process. Um, there are no turning points. There are never turning points. That's what we have discovered in the Trump presidency, is that nothing is a turning point um, because Trump's base doesn't care and isn't watching these proceedings regardless and isn't paying any attention to anything other than Fox News and Trump's congressional allies uh, uh, are paying attention, but they have decided that they are going to go down with this particular ship if that's what it takes. Um, so no, I don't, I don't think this is likely to change anything. Um, I think that when we, I mean, I mean, we don't know yet how protracted this will be. We don't know, you know, various things could happen that could change the timeline that they're talking about in the House, uh, including, you know, potentially if this drags on long enough, uh, they get some answers from the pending court cases about whether some of those subpoenaed who have refused to testify will be ordered to testify by the courts. Um, that could potentially draw things out if it happens. At the moment, they seem perfectly willing to go ahead without that testimony, which um, I actually seems to me is actually a mistake, but that's another another story. Um, I also we also don't know what the Republicans are going to do when this gets to the Senate, um, and we don't know whether they are going to decide to drag it out by uh, instead of having. Um, the focus beyond President Trump by deciding that they're going to try to change the focus to you know, Hunter Biden or something like that. They've suggested that that's exactly what they're going to try to do. So they could decide to drag it out in all kinds of ways themselves. So I think the answer to how long is this going to take is we don't know. And the answer to is it likely to be a turning point is nope. Um, okay, well, we can end this podcast really quickly here. Um, unless, Ed, you think anything of significance is actually going to happen this week, whether it's going to be at NATO, where Trump seems committed to um, dialing back our support for NATO financially uh, and continues on his quest to advance Soviet or Russian propaganda, uh, whether it has to do with Ukraine or whether it has to do with um, undercutting um, NATO. So that, that could be um, newsworthy. Uh, or do you disagree with what Rosa has said? I, I think it, I think it could be newsworthy. I mean, it might, might for a change be Macron rather than Trump, who creates uh, controversy uh, at a NATO summit, um, and indeed Erdogan, um, you know, who's in his own sort of headbutting contest with Macron now. Um, Macron calling NATO brain dead, and Erdogan calling Macron brain dead. So Trump's got got some competition. Um, I can't help thinking, though, that, you know, this summit, the 70th anniversary summit comes just eight days before the British general election. And uh, Boris has been pleading openly, um, you know, and very ill-disguisedly with Trump not to open his mouth about British politics, because Trump really is detested in Britain. And if there's one thing Corbyn has got going for him, Jeremy Corbyn, in this election, it is that... Um, is that Trump likes Boris and that counts against Boris and that, you know, Trump would like to see the National Health Service um, opened up to American pharma, pharma companies and um, um, national um, health data made available to American health companies and so forth. And if there's one thing that could prevent what looks likely to be a conservative victory, um, maybe it's Trump intervening clumsily on Boris's side. Um, but I don't have any forecasts, 
Trump, you know, likes to be unpredictable. He considers unpredictability to be a virtue. It may be making a virtue out of necessity, since I'm not sure he knows what he's going to do at any given moment, um, and and he's just unpredictable um, by nature. Um, Max, do you have any uh, outlooks for this week that uh, differ from the above, or or perhaps maybe you think some of the things that have broken in the news recently um, may end up coloring this discussion? There was a really interesting. Uh, article by uh, our colleague here who does one of our podcasts, Molly Jung-Fast, who wrote an article uh, in the Daily Beast, which was the first interview um, with Lisa Page, which describes yet another attack by Trump on a woman, a misogynistic attack on a public servant, uh, kind of a twofer for him going after somebody who is a dedicated um, public servant that he would describe as being in the deep state and a woman. Um, And uh, I thought that was extremely hard hitting and might color the discussion. Uh, But on the other hand, you've been following this pretty closely and maybe you think Rose is right. Maybe nothing that we can discuss is going to change anything in anybody's view. After all, we learned last week that Devin Nunez was going around you know, participating in the conspiracy he was investigating, that didn't produce much much of a reaction. Now there seems to be also some um, fairly strong um, assertions that the core phone call that Sondland had with uh, Trump, according to Sondland, actually never took place and that there is no record of it and that Trump didn't say there's no quid pro quo because he actually never had the phone call. So you know, does any of this make a difference or is Rosa right? None of it makes a difference. Well, I, you know, I was kind of jealous of the fact that it's snowing in New York because we got any snow in D.C., you know, work would have been canceled. And given how busy this week is going to be, I think there was a lot of people not looking forward to returning to the office, given how hectic things are going to going to be this week. Uh, so, you know, I think Rosa is right. But, um, you know, I think. My reaction after the two weeks of of testimony was I think the House Democrats, Schiff in particular, did a very good job at proving the case that Trump did it in vis-a-vis Ukraine. And I think part of the reason why we feel sort of depressed and there's sort of this depressed feeling that nothing matters is because it didn't seem to to change uh, Republican minds. I I think, you know, we're not sort of going to know until we get to the final vote. And I think there's two things that really, you know, could interject. One uh, is Rudy Giuliani and the investigations that are going around there. That seems to be a ticking time bomb, uh, and his uh, a moment for uh, <laughs> to, to be indicted, to be arrested, uh, appears not far off. And I think that could significantly, I think, color the the outlook of of uh, Republicans that are after vote. Um, the second thing is that we just don't know what other scandals around the corner could happen tomorrow at NATO. I think one of the reasons why his poll numbers, Trump's poll numbers, went down significantly uh, uh, earlier um, in October was the was because of his Turkey decision, and you saw some softening of support among Republicans. And and so I think that when we get to the House vote, the assumption is that right now nothing matters, and I think that's most likely correct. However, I think the Republicans have done a pretty bad job, especially in the House, of sort of setting the expectation games. The expectation now is that there'll be no defections. Uh, but, you know, you could easily, I think, possibly see someone, you know, akin to Justin Amash coming out in April, 
coming out and and voting another way, particularly if um, there's a two to three weeks of of continuously bad stories about Trump. So, and I think even getting any Republicans to vote for uh, impeach uh, impeachment voting uh, in the House could put a lot of pressure on the Senate and could potentially shift the calculus. But I, generally, you know, I think that is sort of a long shot. You, Rosa is right in being skeptical that nothing is a turning point. Um, and I think when we think about, uh, you know, about what's about to happen in Europe, you know, this is going to be a really pivotal week. It's one where the NATO alliance, as Ed was saying, is in in, in sort of shambles. And Macron is now uh, the French president has seen, you know, in sort of, I think, what is a reaction to Trump pulling out of Turkey, uh, or t- pulling out of Syria, giving Turkey the green light to invade northern Syria with no coordination with NATO allies. And Macron's response is, what is NATO for? This could have huge impact on French security and European security. And being sort of annoyed at all the other Europeans for not having done anything to act on a lot of Macron's proposals over the last few years. So I think this could be a summit full of fireworks and whether Boris Johnson wants Trump to react, Macron may want uh, to, to initiate a reaction. So it could be quite entertaining. And the one other thing, you know, in addition to the British election, we also will have, uh, you mentioned Lisa Page, there's going to be a report from the Department of Justice Inspector General, who seems to only investigate things that Trump wants, uh, but will come out with a report into whether the Russia investigation was a big hoax. Uh, concocted by the deep state, and it looks like he'll come out with a report saying, uh, uh, I think it's December 8th, saying that that's not the case. So I think we're going to have two weeks of a lot of uh, news, a lot of events. And while nothing seems to matter, I think it all sort of builds up, and you never know when um, when someone might act, when the House Republican that we haven't heard of decides to do something brave and actually go against his party. Unlikely, but I think we shall see. Rosa, I think your theory is holding up pretty well. In fact, um, as I sort of look forward based on your theory here, um, we're going to get a lot of news, and Max and Ed have talked about some of the news that's going to come. And what we think is likely to happen is what's going to happen. You know, we're going to have some more hearings. At the end of the hearings, there'll be a vote on impeachment. At the end of the vote, the Democrats will vote for it. The Republicans will vote against it. Trump will become the third person in American history to be impeached after Andrew Johnson uh, and Bill Clinton. The case will go to the Senate. The Senate will not vote to remove him from office. Trump will take this as a vindication. Uh, Mitch McConnell will say that what happened in the House was a sham. We'll be into the elections. The elections will seem a little exciting in the early states. Um, But then by the time we get to the middle of the elections, you know, Joe Biden, the establishment candidate is going to end up winning. Winning, you know, the election uh, was good to be the Democratic nominee. We're going to end up with a Trump-Biden election. It's going to be unnecessarily close. Um, and uh, and and can I like take the next year off? I mean, you know, it does. It's just like, is anything going to change any of this stuff, or are we just sort of, you know, we're you know, if some something is foreordained and and it's just going to happen. So, David, I think you're you're basically right that we're going to see events play out in the next year, more or less, as you said. But I don't think that that means that nothing important is going to happen or has the potential to happen. Um, I think that 
when you think about the possible scenarios um, in the runoff and immediate aftermath of the 2020 election, um, there's all kinds of stuff that that will be affected by what is done in the next 12 months. And and you know, let me just throw out a few of those scenarios, right? That um, looking ahead now, for instance, it's quite possible. To, I, I think possible, not likely, but possible that if the election is close and Trump loses, that he would either step down but immediately start making trouble for the new president-elect, including possibly amplified by right-wing media, you know, calling for active forms of resistance. I think it's also possible, again, not likely, but possible that if it was close and there was any ambiguity that he would refuse to accept the election results. He certainly hinted at, at doing exactly that uh, many, many times. Um, and that he would claim that there had been some kind of fraud, that the Ukrainians had hacked it, that Hunter Biden had hacked it, who knows, and that he would say he's not leaving because he actually did win. Uh, I think he genuinely wins if he unambiguously wins, which is also unfortunately possible. Um, and in fact, probably more likely than the other two scenarios I just painted. Um, it's possible if he wins that he, it's very likely, in fact, if he wins, that he will view this as a total vindication and feel completely unleashed to go after his adversaries who are, are numerous um, much more aggressively and that we could really begin to see something that starts looking like uh, authoritarian crackdowns on dissent and so forth. Uh, which he hasn't really done so far. He's made noises, but he hasn't really sought to use the IRS or the FBI to go after political opponents. We could see that changing. And I could go on. I could go on painting various uh, depressing scenarios. And and the reason I, I throw those out here is because I do think that what happens in the next 12 months will have some impact on how likely those various scenarios are. Um, and I think, for instance, that this next next 10, 10 months or so is the time to be, you know, shoring up electoral systems. It's the time to be really focusing on how do we know that the results are legitimate? How do we make sure that there are paper backups? How do we make sure that there's not voter suppression? You know, how do we make sure that key institutional actors are thinking about all the various types of shenanigans that could occur, um, et cetera? And I think the same is true for those other scenarios, that, that, that there are all kinds of ways in which the work that gets done or doesn't get done, the conversations we have or don't bother to have between now and then actually have a huge impact on the likelihood that any of those scenarios actually unfolds. Um, so even though I think the sort of basic outlines of what you said, you know, the impeachment doesn't make any difference, you know, it ends up being Biden versus Trump, uh, it's, not, it's a close election, um, are, are probably likely and probably not going to be changed that those other variables actually are enormously in terms of the likelihood that things go completely off the rails as opposed to just a little bit off the rails. That gives me a little bit more faith in our agency, maybe. Um, but, Ed, you know, one place where it seems to me that the effects are big and real uh, uh, and uh, they produce change is in the consequences of what's happening in the U.S. for U.S. foreign policy, whether it's the weakening of NATO and other people stepping up, which you were hinting at before. Uh, we had the, 
the the president of uh, Ukraine t talking about, um, you know, he doesn't he doesn't like you know Ukraine to be treated like a beggar and seem to be repudiating Trump. And even though Trump said the the quote sort of exonerated him, which is tends to be his response to everything. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, it also seemed to be that even though Ukraine is heavily dependent on the U.S., Zelensky was saying, I, I didn't like that. And, and, and it's got to be damaging for the relationship. And I can cite other places where the position that the U.S. has taken is having a lasting consequence, just as it could conceivably on British politics, as you talked about it. Um, and, and, and so even if what's happening is, is fairly predictable here, the aftershocks in the world, maybe not so much, eh? Um, no, I mean, with Ukraine, you know, essentially what, what Zelensky is putting in politer terms is what Macron said, which is, we can't really rely on you um, anymore. And, you know, we've got all this, um, essentially this political corruption sort of being imported into, into Ukraine from Washington, which we don't want and don't need. We thought you were supposed to be helping us. Um, if, you know, there was a longer term goal, I think, of most members of NATO with a question mark over Macron and Erdogan um, about what they would want uh, from the 70th anniversary um, of, of NATO, it would be some kind of assurance that America is actually going to stick around. And I think, you know, if, if Trump is reelected, I would give at least a 50-50 odds on on the United States withdrawing from NATO um, in his second term. Um, I, I'd, I'd give more like sort of 70-30 odds on the United States withdrawing from the World Trade Organization um, in a Trump second term. And therefore, very, very high odds on Ukraine de facto being... Um, but because it faces no choice back within the acknowledged Russian sphere of influence. So these are these are not sort of incremental minor sort of um, shifts in the tectonic plates. These are these are serious and very plausible um, trajectories that we're on um, if Trump is reelected. Um, uh, so, you know, the other variables, I mean, that's that's the hugest variable that sort of adds up to that is greater than everything pretty much else added up. Um, but the other variables more immediately is that, you know, I wouldn't take your assumption that Biden is going to be the nominee. Um, I know that what I know that wasn't your forecast, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily take, take that assumption. Um, and a wild card is uh, chief justice Roberts presiding over the Senate trial uh, with um you know, perhaps a larger institutional um, uh, uh, curatorship in mind in terms of what his role is in in the grand scheme of things and the knowledge that he will be perceived to be potentially partisan and conservative and therefore hopefully the desire to disprove that. And, you know, you can't really refuse a subpoena from the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. You can refuse a subpoena um, from the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, but from the Chief Justice is quite a different matter. So, you know, uh, there is a possibility there when uh, the the um, the managers, the House managers of this trial, um, 
you know, request that um, Giuliani and Bolton and Mike Pompeo be called to testify, um, that Justice Roberts um, will um, will back up that call. And that, that could produce a very interesting dynamic in which, you know, the next set of revelations actually occurs in the Senate trial rather than the Judiciary Committee stage, which I don't think any of us are expecting to produce any any bombshells. Um, well, one of the things that's going to throw a twist into the Judiciary uh, Committee hearings, uh, Max, is that they are going to sort of revisit the Mueller report. Schiff was given a mandate to go and look at what happened in Ukraine and really stay narrowly focused on that. Uh, clearly, there is some appetite among some in the Judiciary Committee to revisit at least the parts of the Mueller report that pertain to obstruction of justice. Um, the Republicans did everything in their power the day after the Mueller report was released and after Mueller appeared on the Hill um, to, you know, pile dirt on it and declare dead. Um, but do you think it's got the the energy to make a comeback? Well, well, I think you know what what they're specifically going to do is try to raise, uh, try to get Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, to come and testify, and what he'll testify to. Uh, under oath is that the president of the United States uh, sought to obstruct justice and obstruct the Mueller investigation. And what's clear, the Mueller report laid out 10 clear cases of obstruction of justice. And I think what, what the Mueller report really shows is that politics matter, that it matters how uh, and, and what political leaders decide to talk about can really set the narrative about uh, how we think about certain issues. Because now the sort of presumption or, or perspective on, on the Mueller report is, well, he didn't Mueller didn't have it, or Mueller didn't really produce the goods, and, and Trump uh, was sort of exonerated from it. When in fact, that report is the most damning report probably ever, official report ever written about the President of the United States. The 198 pages in Volume 1 outline clear collusion uh, with, the, with the Russians. Mueller said he couldn't quite prove a conspiracy, but he included 198 pages of different contacts with the Russians to point to uh, the reasons why they're obstructing justice. Uh, and then the volume two is all about the obstruction of justice. So I think, you know, I, my guess is I doubt House Democrats are going to reopen that fight. Uh, I think they sort of missed it when, you know, Pelosi didn't go to the stage, didn't go to the podium after the report came out and say, oh my God, we're announcing impeachment investigation uh, hearings. Um, but I think the it's sort of too good to pass up uh, just a clear uh, article of impeachment related to obstruction of justice. I think, you know, in terms of what uh, what Rosa sort of outlined and what um, Ed outlined, uh, Rosa, both in terms of the impact of the next election on our domestic politics and then Ed on kind of US, the U.S. position in the world, shows how, you know, every election of my lifetime has been the most important election in American history. It really feels like it this time, uh, where uh, the future of U.S. democracy is is not sort of clear uh, if Trump were to win. And I think part of what Macron is saying when he goes to the Europeans is to say, look, America's gone. It's not coming back. We need to face this new world. I think he's wrong. I think and I think Rosa's in some ways, um, Rosa's probably being more realistic and right. And I'm being more optimistic and wrong. But I, I think, you know, when we look at Trump's prospects for re-election, we have to remember how he won in the first place. He had, you know, a massive Russian interference campaign that really impacted the October 
uh, the month before the election. He then had James Comey come out 11 days before and effectively in the public's mind say that the, uh, her, his opponent was a criminal uh, and corrupt. And then you had the Clinton campaign just sort of missing the boat on where they should be campaigning, uh, not campaigning in the right places, and totally misreading the electorate. Now, all of that could happen again. Um, and if it does, Trump still probably won't win the popular vote. In order to you know, win again, he's got to sort of have this Rube Goldberg-style uh, uh, path to winning the Electoral College. And it, it's there. It, you can see a, a certain path. But I also think, you know, I do think that, you know, it's impossible to predict how the Democratic primaries are going to turn out. Uh, in this stage, this part, you know, where we were in 2008 uh, or 2007, you know, Obama wasn't, oh, this guy's going to emerge and clearly be president. There's tons of doubts about him. Uh, Clinton was a front runner. Edwards looked pretty strong. So in, in 2016, no one was predicting Trump was going to be there. So I think we, we, sh we shouldn't be too deterministic about how things are going to proceed. I think Ed's point as well about Justice Roberts proceeding over an impeachment trial, I think could have a real impact. And, you know, there are moments in history where it takes one person to stand up and say something and sort of turn the tide when people weren't expecting it. Uh, a moment like that is probably not going to happen, but I think we can't discount it and we shouldn't be sort of uh, too depressed about our future yet. Thank, well, thank you for playing the role of optimist here because that's <laughs> not the role that Rosa traditionally plays. Um, Never. And, 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 it's good to, and it's good to have somebody offer that optimism. Uh, I don't know if you want to respond to any of that, Rosa, um, or I can pose to you another question. Um, well, I, I'll just very briefly, no, I, 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 I think, unfortunately, you know, the operative words were the ones Max said towards the end there, that this is, this is unlikely, but I agree with him. It's, it's, it's worth trying. And, and um, I actually do think that the Democrats should focus not only on the Ukraine-related issues, but on the broader Russia and obstruction of justice issues. And for that matter, I would love to throw in the rape allegations while we're at it. Um, um, I, think it's, I think it's a mistake to focus narrowly on Ukraine. I think precisely because it's such a, it, it feels technical to a lot of people, I think. I think it is hard for people who aren't uh, really paying very, very close attention to follow it and see what's going on and see why it's wrong. And I think that's, in fact, exactly what we've seen with the, with the GOP, that they have just switched into, oh, okay, fine. So maybe he did what you said he did, but who cares? It's not that important. Um, so I, I think it's, I, I would love to see them broaden it out. And I think that the, the political risks are more than counterbalanced by the, the potential political benefits. Um, I also do think it's sort of important for the historical record. And, and frankly, you know, I, in, in addition to what Max said, um, about, you know, sometimes all it takes is one person to shift the balance and to you know, open the floodgates. Uh, I think that's right. Um, I think it's unlikely, but, but it's absolutely worth trying to find that one person who then gives others courage to come forward. Um, we probably will fail, not because we're not doing enough on our end, but because the GOP in Congress right now is um, not a lot of paragons of moral courage. Um, but I think it's still worth trying. But I, but I also think in addition to that, um, that this is about not just what happens this year or next year or even five years from now. This is also to some extent about, you know, laying out a historical record. And, and 
that broader record is one that is, I think, important to to lay out. No doubt. Ed, let me shift the focus a little bit since we got you here. And, I, and, I, and I'd like to bring up another issue that sort of falls in the category of the big consequences that are happening when we're focusing on other things. Um, I, have, have you had a chance, Ed, yet today to read this New Yorker article called Blood and Soil in Narendra Modi's India? Indeed, and I tweeted it out enthusiastically. It's a great, it's a really good uh, piece, a Dexter Wilkins piece. Well, I, I, I missed it because I'm, I'm currently in hiding from uh, simultaneous attacks from anti-Semites and a bunch of Bernie bros that are making my Twitter experience really uh, unpleasant, although, frankly, they could all be the same guy in Russia. Um, but, you know, in, in any event, one of the things... I saw the really troubling, really troubling text you got from the, uh, the web, whether it was a Russian bot or, or whoever it was on the anti-Semite thing, which was ghastly. Well, um, it was. And, and, you know, it vaguely relates to this. But, you know, one of the things that Trump has done as a matter of policy is sought to dehumanize Muslims. And he's done it in ways that most Americans may find a very subtle difference from the ways it was done by Dick Cheney. But, you know, closing the borders and and uh, seeking to turn away um, uh, refugees from predominantly Muslim countries uh, using dehumanizing language, et cetera. But simultaneously, there are other efforts in the world that have consequences not in terms of thousands or tens of thousands, but have consequences that are actually in terms of millions um, or hundreds of millions. And one strikes me as the situation with Narendra Modi in India. And another strikes me as the situation with China and the Uyghurs, who, and the Chinese seem to be adjusting the way they're dealing with the Uyghurs to try to reduce you know, the flack they're getting overseas, but not to stop actually putting them in camps, trying to re-educate them and penalizing them for their beliefs. And you know, you have to wonder if a, an American president who actually believed in, you know, traditional American values, uh, were in office, whether these kind of wholesale attacks on Muslims around the world would be going on. Uh, and in fact, you know, just to play out what we were talking about further, should Trump be reelected? What the longer-term global consequences in situations like this might be? Well, we talk about um, the term frozen conflicts, um, you know, conflicts that have been kept in place um, by the sort of overarching presence of the United States as a guarantor of global stability and, and um, Pax Americana, etc., now becoming unfrozen because America is spurning that role um, under Trump. Um, and the, the situation in Kashmir is one example. Um, there are many examples um, um, around the world, uh, and the situation in the you know the Middle East. Um, we were discussing Turkey is another of them. But um, we shouldn't forget with Modi that the um, Bush administration and Tony Blair's government um, both refused Modi a visa to visit the United States when he was chief minister. Um, of Gujarat and to visit the United Kingdom. And that visa ban on Modi um, continued for 10 years 
right up until the eve of the 2014 Indian general election, which he won, well, the BJP won under his leadership, because they realized, well, we can't have a visa ban on the prime minister of the world's largest democracy in place. Um, and the reason that ban was put in place is because he, as chief minister, and this is something you know, that um, is reprised very, very well in the New Yorker article you mentioned, because he, as chief minister of Gujarat, presided over this massacre of Muslims that included women and children, um, that included the connivance of the police, that included basically state-sponsored um, uh, slaughter of whole neighborhoods um, uh, as a reprisal for an attack um, on, um, on some Hindu pilgrims, Hindu activists coming back from, from northern India. And, and he, there were a lot of reports into this. And one of the great things that the New Yorker piece brings out is that the reports always stop short of, um, of um, identifying Modi as the direct sort of culprit ordering everything. Modi is as clever you know, as any mob boss. He, he's not, he keeps his fingerprints off it. But anybody who's covered that story or is familiar with Gujarat knows that this was a Modi project. Um, and Modi is now prime minister and he is now, um, you know, um, annulled the autonomy of India's only Muslim majority state, uh, Kashmir, cut off, put all its leaders under house arrest, cut off internet communications, um, to the whole state, um, banned um, journalists, most journalists, foreign and domestic, from going there, um, and conducted sort of intimidation on a, uh, in a form that you, you would expect in Xinjiang, perhaps in an autocracy. Um, and that's the direction that Modi is taking India. Trump doesn't give a damn. He doesn't give a damn about Xinjiang either. I don't think he gives a damn about Hong Kong, where he was forced to sign that bill. Um, and so all of these situations are sort of thawing. They're becoming unfrozen. And ju just to go back, you know, to what we were discussing um, earlier, if, it, if, if there is a second Trump term, um, I, I no doubt that these, these, um, these conflicts will flare up into, into much, much bigger um, geopolitical problems. And that America will at best be absent, but at worst be on one side or the other, um, because Trump would have seen some transactional advantage from it. Um, it all seems, you know, when you look at things day to day and the speed of events, things seem to be moving slowly. But if you just sort of take a 30,000 foot view of this, the speed of geopolitical breakup and change is um, really quite quite rapid um, and, and quite um, terrifying. And uh, I, I know India better than the other examples, but um, you know, India is the largest democracy in the world and soon to be the largest country in the world. And the fact that we don't care very much what happens inside its borders is, is, a, is a very sort of tragic statement on what we in the West have become. No, no question about that. And, uh, you know, for all the reasons we've just been talking about, there's plenty of reason to fear that it may get worse. Um, at the risk of having somebody say that this particular episode seems a little bit like a survey, there are a number of things that I, I wanted to cover that may seem far afoot, although they're all tied to, you know, our normal beat. 
Um, Max, you run something called the Moscow Project. You guys were looking deeply into the connections between the president and Moscow. We did notice that over the past few days, we've had President Putin celebrating the fact that President Trump and those close to him, most recently Senator John Kennedy, have been uh, promoting that perhaps it was Ukraine that did these things in 2016. Um, but I, I have another question from somebody who's been immersed in this like you have been. You know, I get a sense that, you know, at one point we would sit there and we'd say, well, Mueller will get to this and Mueller will get to that. And then Mueller came out and he didn't in a lot of cases. And then there were 12 other investigations. We thought, well, the 12 other investigations will get to this and to that. And then most of them sort of disappeared. We've got one that seems to be ongoing with Parnas and Furman that's related to the Giuliani thing and maybe related back to the Mueller thing. But you know, as you've been in the middle of this, to what extent do you feel like we're looking at an iceberg and and nine tenths of it are below the surface? You know, I mean, is it? Do you feel that we know most of what's you know to be known about the relationship between Trump and the Russians, or do you feel we haven't done the investigating we should be doing? Well, I think we're sort of looking at the tip of the iceberg, and we could see. Um, we can, you know, at times we can sort of get, you know, the iceberg sort of comes up and then it comes down. We can sometimes see a little bit more uh, and then it goes back into the surface. I, to me, you know, I think the thing with the Mueller investigation, and this was clear at the time when the report came out, is that the Mueller investigation was constrained in looking at all sorts of different areas of Russian interference. The biggest example is the, is the most obvious way that Russians interfere in democratic politics, especially in Europe, is through money. If you wanted to support a candidate, you fund them. Uh, that's what they've done in France with Le Pen. They were recently sort of busted in this scheme to su support uh, the populist in Italy, uh, Salvini. Um, and and so the the funding is really where, if you want to influence American politics, it's quite you know that's the avenue. And when we look at the indictments of Parnas and Fruman, what they what these guys effectively figured out how to do was just serve as middlemen. They understood, they learned how American, uh, how to give money to political candidates, and then they act as fronts for foreign money. One was a Russian, uh, uh, a rich Russian oligarch who likes to invest in the U.S. weed industry, to believe it or not, and they were trying to effectively get licenses from the state of Nevada, and so they were giving $10,000 to Nevada state politicians. It was things like that, that, you know, so that we see, here's an example of foreign money coming into U.S. politics. And the Mueller investigation identifies identifies two areas of Russian interference. One, the online social media angle, um, and then the effort to uh, effectively establish contacts and, and, well, establish contacts with the Trump campaign and then also the hacking. But it never looks into uh, the funding. Uh, and I think part of the reason why Trump is so eager to keep his tax returns concealed is that there's going to be a, lots of revelations there that likely reveal criminal activity, uh, probably cheating on his taxes, but also potential connections to uh, Russian money and therefore uh, Russian influence over the president of the United States. So to me, uh, the Mueller investigation was fairly, you know, it, it left wanting more, but it was what it provided was still, I think, in, in incredibly damning. And to just sort of pick up on, on I think, Ed's, point. Um, you know, part of what the Russians were about, they're not about one political party or another. There's about uh, sort of causing 
the West to question democracy, causing democracy to look bad in the eyes of the world. And what we see with Trump is the kind of step away from U.S. support for democracy, for human rights, basic things that the United States uh, stood for in Republican or Democratic administrations. And that has created a vacuum. And so there's this sort of permission structure. Suddenly, what you know, India and Modi and probably others wouldn't have contemplated doing, Khashoggi with uh, the murder of Khashoggi, for instance, and uh, uh, on behalf of Saudi Arabia, suddenly become things. You know, the envelope can be pushed. And I think, you know, it, it works the other way too. That we tend to see democratic uprisings and movements happen together. You know, 1989, 2011, uh, 1848, where countries are looking at each other, publics are looking at each other for guidance on what's, what, where, which direction to go to. And I think, unfortunately, now we find ourselves in kind of moving in an autocratic way where Trump is sort of advancing that. Uh, and that's firmly in the interest of Vladimir Putin, who's, who's not sort of the puppet master behind any of this. I think that gets overstated, but is effectively uh, trying, you know, uh, you know, trying to uh, support and aid, uh, provide support wherever he can, much like U.S. democracy assistance in the 90s was trying to support democracy. I think Putin is trying to do the same vis-a-vis uh, uh, vis populist and autocratic movements. And so when it comes to the Russian investigation, I think we know a bit. I think there's a lot that we're not seeing, a lot of those cases that weren't shown. I think a lot of the redactions in the Mueller report would be incredibly revealing, as the Roger Stone uh, case, I think, revealed. There was a lot of incredibly damning stuff there. Um, and I think one of the things that if Trump were to lose and we were to have a new administration, I think there needs to be a full accounting of, of what actually happened with the Department of Justice, what actually happened with these investigations, not simply to sort of retaliate and respond to Trump and hold them accountable, but really so that we are more prepared, uh, to not just we, but our allies as well, about how to deal with foreign interference, foreign influence, potential corruption, and to kind of expose that and make that fairly transparent to the public. Well, um, we certainly hope that you guys will keep at it. I, 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 I come away with the shared impression that uh, we're a long, long way from fully understanding this, and and that's you know apart from, um, you know the elements of it that touch into to other governments. Uh, Ed, we got to wrap up here, but you did touch upon the British election, and um, uh, that's looming on the horizon. Uh, but I wonder if I can end with a question for you that echoes the question earlier, which is, is this election going to produce any change, or is this more like uh, what we were talking about in the U.S., or perhaps the Israeli elections, where they just keep doing it over and over again and getting the same result? I think if there is a majority for Boris, uh, for the Conservatives, I shouldn't say Boris, um, for the Boris Johnson-led Conservatives, then there will be Brexit on the terms that he negotiated, which are terrible terms. They're less bad than a no-deal Brexit, but they're pretty awful. Um, he will then hit reality within a year because there's another deadline, and we'll get that sort of deja vu all over again feeling because the real Brexit, uh, post-Brexit relationship hasn't um, started to be negotiated, and he's badly misled the British electorate that when... Brexit happens, Brexit's over. It, that's when Brexit begins. So we're into a sort of world of re recurring, repetitive um, Brexit negotiation hell that will go on for many years and um, where the mutual recriminations won't necessarily involve the blameworthy people actually getting the blame. So I, I have to say I can't, 
I'm not I'm not feeling chipper. And uh, uh, unlike, of course, on every other subject in the world, <laughs> I'm not feeling chipper about Britain's outlook. So, so let me get this straight: not chipper about Britain, not chipper about NATO, not chipper about India, not chipper about China, not chipper about the U.S., not chipper about U.S.-Russia relations. Are you chipper about anything? Should we have an intervention? Canada, Are you okay? Canada if- is intact. Canada is intact. My daughter's grades are improving. She's not going to get a dog. Um, uh, the <laughs> Thanksgiving, I was thankful for a wonderful Thanksgiving meal. Um, so I, I'm chipper on the on the modest, um, sort of nearsighted stuff, um, but um, uh, not not the big macro trends, unfortunately. <sighs> we end with a sigh, but I'm glad you're chipper on the on the on the, the the things that are closest to your home. I'm glad you could join us again, Max. I hope you'll come back sometime soon. I'm glad you could join us too, Rose. Although you just dropped off a second ago because your daughters were arriving home from school and you had to attend to that. Um, and uh, I'm uh, hopeful that um, some of the mild pessimism or sense of inertia that infused this episode will be shaken away by actual events that surprise us with our good fortune in the week or weeks ahead of us. Uh, So with that, we'll leave you. I encourage you to come back and join us again for uh, the next episodes of Deep State Radio. We've got another one on Thursday at five, as we usually do. Uh, And go to thedsrnetwork.com for more information about what we are doing, what we have planned, where you can buy great DSR swag as Christmas gifts, how you could become a member uh, for not too much money at all, like the cost of a latte a month, and do great wonders for helping us to have conversations like this uh, often each and every week. Thanks to all of you for joining.